All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip that started from this tropic port aboard this tiny ship. Welcome to the Inventive Fishing Fishing Professor Rodcast. I am Sid Dobrin, the Fishing Professor, and using only a couple of coconuts, I'm going to deliver a fantastic Rodcast for you today because we have got one of the most knowledgeable fishing experts on the entire island with us in the inshore offshore digital studio. I am thrilled to welcome Mr. Jim Hendricks of Saltwater Sportsman, Sport Fishing, Marlin, and several other magazines to the Rodcast. Jim is not just a leading expert on all matters fishing. He's also probably one of the most knowledgeable experts in boating and marine electronics you'll ever meet. And we're going to talk boats, electronics, and fishing today while hanging out by the lagoon. And after Jim teaches us a few things and tells a few good stories, I'm going to give you the lowdown on my top 10 shrimp imitators. And I got to say, this was a tough top 10 to put together because I've written pieces for Florida sportsmen and for saltwater sportsmen about shrimp and shrimp imitators. And I have more shrimp imitators than just about any other kind of lure. So picking just 10 took making some really tough decisions. But hey, sometimes it's okay to be indecisive because if you have to pick, say, between, I don't know, Marianne and Ginger... Personally, I'd opt to have them both in my hut. And hey, little buddies, in this episode, I'll also take a look at High West's American Prairie bourbon during the bourbon break today, because let's face it, if you got a Play-Doh shrimp, nothing goes better with them than a glass of bourbon. And let's be honest about it, too. If Marianne and Ginger are hanging out in your hut, you might want a bit of bourbon around, too. And let me just say that the best line in the history of TV themes, to me, may be the movie star, the professor and Mary Ann, and we'll just leave it at that. Hey, you know, I think maybe a quick professorial moment is, is due here about Gilligan's Island. So we all know from the theme song that the ship set ground on the shore of this uncharted desert isle with Gilligan, the skipper too, the millionaire and his wife, the movie star, the professor and Mary Ann here on Gilligan's Isle. But we don't really get their names from this, nor do we ever really know their full names beyond these shortened versions. Now, Gilligan has no name beyond Gilligan, but the skipper is actually named Jonas Grumby. We probably remember Thurston Howell III and his wife Lovey Howell, but what about Ginger's last name or Mary Ann's? Well, it's Ginger Grant and Mary Ann Summers. And of course, the professor is Professor Roy Hinckley. Now you know, knowledge is power. And did you know that the parrot that appears in three episodes was voiced by none other than Mel Blanc, the voice of Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Yosemite Sam, Tweety Bird, Mr. Spacely, Captain Caveman, and a hundred or so other characters? Well, now you know that too. 
So no phone, no lights, no motor car, not a single luxury like Robinson Crusoe. We're as primitive as can be. But you can still email me at sid at inventifishing.com or use the comment option on any of the platforms through which you have accessed the Rodcast if you need rescuing. And with that, my fellow castaways, let's get on with it before the weather starts getting rough. All right, so today I am thrilled to have here in the Inventive Fishing Inshore Offshore Digital Studio, the award-winning boating and fishing writer, columnist, and editor, Jim Hendricks. Now, Jim has spent the last 45 years writing about boating and fishing for some of the most iconic publications in the industry. He currently develops content for Bonnier Corporation, the American media company that produces magazines like Saltwater Sportsman, Marlin, Sport Fishing, Yachting, Boating, and Sailing World, among others. Jim develops content for boating, saltwater sportsmen, and sport fishing, and for the last decade has been the West Coast Electronics Editor for the Bonnier Fishing Group. He has served as the editor of Trailer Boat Magazine for 14 years and at the same time was editorial director for Power Boat Magazine. If I remember correctly, Bonnier bought those magazines and then uh, got rid of one of them. I forget which one. Uh, 2003, uh, Jim received the prestigious Moulton H. Monk Farnham Award for Excellence in Editorial Commentary. He has got a wealth of fishing and boating experience from around the world, but most of his life he's chosen to focus on fishing from his own boat in Southern California. Now, I've been fortunate to have fished with Jim a couple of times, once from his own boat in Southern California and once out of Laredo, Mexico. And it's a story I'm hoping we're going to get a chance to relive a little bit of today, Jim. So, Jim, thanks so much for being here. Well, thanks. It's a thrill to be here with you. Sid, I wish we were out fishing, but this is the next best thing. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So <laughs> you've got, let, let's talk about the boating industry because there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on and, you know, you are, you know, the expert in the boating and um, at the end of 2021, the National Marine Manufacturers Association, the NMMA, reported that retail sales for power boats had exceeded 300,000 units for the second year in a row. And that's only the second time in the last 15 years that that's happened. So there's been a strong demand for boats these last two years. But for all kinds of reasons, ranging from supply chain issues, getting components from Asia, and even limited employment at manufacturer plants, the industry just can't keep up with demand. As someone who's really tied to the pulse of that industry, what's your read on what's happening with boat sales right now? Well, it's, you know, it's a great thing. I so many people became interested in boating back around, you know, the boating industry kind of took a little bit of dive at the onset of this thing we call COVID. And then a couple of months later, people began to realize that, hey, you know, great way to social distance is uh, getting out on the water. So boat sales at that stage went through the roof. People just, I mean, along with other recreational uh, uh, equipment like RVs, but uh, boats, especially, they they just they just took off, and unfortunately, it caught the boating industry by surprise. They kn who knew who knew that a pandemic would spur boat sales, and now uh, here we are. What uh, 18, 24 months later, the boat industry is continuing to try to play catch up and supply the demand for motors and electronics and boats. Uh, I mean, some people ordering boats aren't going to be receiving them until next year. So 
it's a, it's a great thing. People are buying boats like crazy. Uh, unfortunately, uh, they're a little frustrated sometimes because they can't get everything that they need, including service. So, um, but I think it's delightful. I see it here in Southern California where I am. Waters are more uh, crowded than ever before with ang boating anglers in particular. Everybody wants to get out on their boat now. And, and, it's, and it's, I think this is going to have a very lasting effect on boating and fishing. I think people are going to continue to want to go out and boat and fish for a long, long time. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we're seeing, and we look at the data from this last last year, you know, marine manufacturing, you know, provides about 690,000 jobs in the U.S. And with this increase in uh, boating sales, what we're seeing also is that boating and fishing have become the number one contributor to the $689 billion dollar outdoor recreational economy and fishing and boating bring in more money now than RVing, hiking, just about every other outdoor recreational activity out there. Um, in fact, I just read a statistic the other day that in 2020, the economic contribution from boating and fishing increased by 30% over, two, over 2019. That to me seems pretty indicative of a thriving industry. Well, it is thriving. It definitely is thriving. And you go to the boat shows and you see that people are, you know, we're go I'm going to be going next month to the Miami International Boat Show. I can't well, we wait. We should get together and have a drink, man, because I'll be well, there. I think that'll happen. <laughs> <laughs> but it's very exciting. It's a very exciting market. And uh, I, I love seeing the, the boating and the fishing markets just um, take off like they are. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting you pointed out too, you know, this caught everybody by surprise because it's not just the boating industry that can't keep up with the demand, but the fishing industry too. I mean, tackle shops are empty because they just can't get stuff on the shelves these days. That's right. That's right. And there's, you know, what happens is there's a great temptation now because the prices for things have, are you, people are paying more money than you would imagine for, for prices. There are no bargains per se anymore when it comes to the boating and fishing equipment. Uh, so there's a great temptation to say, Hey, I'm going to, I got a boat, you know, I'm I can get more money now than I could ever get before. I'm going to go ahead and sell it on the used boat market. But the problem with that is, yeah, you will get some more money for it than you, than you would normally, but you're going to be without a boat. And as you and I n discussed earlier, it's no fun being without a boat. <laughs> it's just not. So uh, my advice is, yeah, you can go ahead and sell your boat, but don't wait until you have another boat lined up and, and you, you're about ready to take delivery. That's my advice. Yeah, I really just had that exact same conversation not two weeks ago with um, a guy that I bought my boat from. And he said, if you, you sell this now, you will not have a boat for at least a year. And I, who wants to be without a boat for a year? Yeah, if you're lucky, you know, right. that's, uh, that's the way the market is right now. Boats are just getting snapped up and uh, as, as quick as the manufacturers can build them, they're selling the boats. Well, speaking of boats, I read somewhere that you've tested over a hundred different fishing boats. So with that kind of experience, what are the boats that stand out to you? I mean, historically over your career, but also now. Well, uh, I have to be careful because I don't want to offend anybody. <laughs> <laughs> uh, being in the magazine business, I have to be try to be as impartial as possible. But certainly, the new breed of big center consoles have impressed me a great deal. Um, you know, from manufacturers like uh, I'm just going to throw out a few names: CV, uh, Invincible, 
Contender, uh, Everglades, uh, Boston Whaler, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not sure I'm missing some there, but they're all, they're all great boats. Uh, Yellowfin's another one that I should throw into the mix. Um, but the new breed of center consoles are um, outstanding. All those boats are built well. They're all built um, with high quality materials. The, the fit and finish and the rigging is immaculate. Uh, the motors are powerful. And what we're seeing is, you know, we're seeing center consoles now reaching upwards of, well, uh, a 45 footer is not unusual. That's not exactly uh, on the high side. You know, I've seen center consoles up to 65 feet in length now, and that's rivaling, you know, uh, diesel powered sport fishers in terms of size and tonnage. Uh, but the center consoles are so much faster, so much more fun to run easier to handle single, you can even handle these single-handed. So, um, and the other thing is that the, the types and shapes of hulls are evolving. So now we're seeing a lot of uh, catamaran hulls, power cats coming out from companies like Freeman and uh, Invincible and Yellowfin has one and Barker has one. Now they're big, stable uh, uh, catamaran hulls. A lot of them with as many as four outboards on them, big, powerful, you know, 400 horsepower, 425 horsepower outboards on the back. And uh, these, I, we just came back from Crystal River where we fished on a big 40 foot Freeman. Uh, and it was, and it had two rows of seating, you know, helm seating, one for the captain and his companions. And a second row that would accommodate three more people. It was like sitting in the back of a Mercedes Benz being driven across the water. It was so comfortable. Um, I can't, you know, I just, I, to me, if somebody had said to me, um, you know, 10 years ago, you're going to be seeing, you know, 40 foot, 50 foot center consoles uh, out there fishing all the time, I would have said, no, you're crazy. It's not ever going to happen, but it's happened. So it tells you how much, how I really don't know what the future is going to bring. <laughs> I can't predict, but I think it's a great, it's a great development. And those boats are selling as fast as, as you know, 25 footers. Yeah, so speaking of center consoles, uh, you know, recently the Boat Buyer's Guide for 2022 came out and uh, you wrote about center consoles in that issue. And one of the things you talk about is that if you're buying a center console for offshore fishing, that uh, a buyer should look closely at the boat's deck. Can you talk a little bit more about that advice? Okay, well, <laughs> that's, there's a, the, the main thing on a fishing center console now is you want to look for a level deck. I've, I've, I've been, I've tested too many boats that had a kind of a stair step up to the bow. So you'd some, and some I've seen that have two stair steps, you know, up to the bow. And I've actually seen a few accidents where somebody was pinned on a pilchard was racing forward to the bow to throw at some dolphin that were under a, under a wee, uh, under some, some sargasm ran right into that stair step, fell down and, and onto their elbows and, and skinned themselves up pretty good. So the, what, the first thing I would say is look for a, a level deck from, from transom up to all the way up to the, there might be a raised casting platform up in a bow, that's okay. But you, wanna, you don't want any stair steps in between those two. So that's very important. Uh, you're also looking for non-skid nowadays. Um, the wet deck is, you know, once again, you can fall and take a spill on a wet deck and, and uh, it hurt yourself. And, and a lot of boats now have... Um, I call it one of the brands of sea deck, but it's closed foam, uh, non-skid onto the deck. Very comfortable. It's yeah. I've done testing on that non-skid. It works 
probably it works better than diamond non-skid. I'll say that. Uh, and very comfortable on bare feet. It's like wearing flip-flops without flip-flops on. Right. right. And, and of course, then you want to, you also want a, a self-bailing deck so that if you take water or you wash down the boat, the water is going to drain out uh, through the scuppers. So those are the, those are the main things that you, you want to look for in the deck. But I would say always look for a level deck. Don't, and, and all the, virtually all the, the fishing boat manufacturers now are, are producing those kind of decks. You also, when you're talking about center consoles, you've uh, provided some interesting advice about live well capacities for offshore angling as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that to me, I found really striking because you were sort of saying, look, you don't have to go with the traditional live wells. There are a lot of different kinds of options now. Well, yeah. And, you know, having grown up fishing here in Southern California, Basically, and you've been on my boat. Uh, you've seen that the, our boats are nothing more than a way to deliver uh, live bait from the harbor out to all the offshore grounds to go fishing. It's, it's, that's what it's all about. I have a 21 and a half foot boat right now, and I have um, three bait tanks on it. Bait, we call them bait tanks in Southern California, but three live wells, uh, two 20 gallon uh, wells in the stern, and another. 30 gallon well on the deck, uh, uh, an upright tank on the deck. So, uh, and, and for a long time, East coast boats didn't really, I mean, because East coast anglers and Gulf anglers do really didn't fish with live bait that much. They didn't really come with the kind of live bait capacity Southern California anglers wanted, but you know, over the years, and I mean, on the past 20, 30 years now, uh, the live bait fishery on, uh, on the East coast, Florida, the Gulf coast, um, has just exploded, you know, live bait is, is what it's at, where it's at. You can't, you know, you know, I've, I've gone to Key West fishing with the Trossets and they won't even go fishing unless they have live bait. And sometimes we fish for live bait till noon and then we go fishing. Uh, it's that important. So if you, so, and, and also live bait, not just for catching fish, but for chumming for fish is extremely important. So the live wells, uh, the manufacturers now are, are really recognizing this trend. They're building live wells into the transom. They build live wells into the deck below deck, what, I, what we call slammer wells here in Southern California. And they're also building them into the uh, seat console, the back of the seat console for the, the, that houses the helm seats. So you're, you, you're tremendous amount of live bait capacity. And many of them have, uh, what I love are they have these viewing windows. So you can, you can actually see the bait without getting up and walking over and lifting up the hatch. Uh, so you can actually see what the bait's like. Also I'll add this, all of the tanks now that we see coming out from the best manufacturers are all pressurized. And that means the lid hatch uh, latches and the tank fills completely up with water. And why that's important is because you don't want any sloshing of that water inside the live bait uh, well, or the live well as it sloshes, it hurts the bait. It kind of bangs them against the sides of the tank. But once you pressurize that tank and it's completely full of water, now you can, um, the, the bait can slosh around quite a bit and it won't get hurt uh, as a result of just being completely enveloped in water. So I'm going to shift gears on you for a second. You know, in addition to being the boat guy, you're also probably one of the foremost experts in marine electronics. And before we started recording this episode, you and I were talking a little bit about uh, GPS and uh, depth finder chart plotters. So 
you, what kind of uh, innovations have you seen in marine electronics that have really changed the game for boaters and anglers? Well, for, for anglers in particular, then I'll address that first because the, the, the development of new and different types of sonars, fish finders, has really um, changed the game. Uh, I'll give you an example. I have a, I, I, I just about five years ago finally switched over from a regular sonar to a chirp sonar. And, that, and I went with a big transducer from Airmar. And that has really opened my eyes to what I might've been missing before I actually was using chirp. Now I'm seeing far more fish. I'm marking. One of the problems I recognized I had with my old uh, transducer, which was a non-trip transducer, is I, I couldn't mark tuna. I knew there were tuna under the boat at times, but I couldn't mark them. And that told me, well, maybe when I don't know there's tuna, maybe they're there and I just, I'm just not seeing them. Chirp allows you to see the, those tuna under the boat that I had never seen before. And out here, oftentimes that's how we stop. A lot of times we won't get bit on the troll We'll be, we'll be trolling along and we'll just be kind of eyeballing the, the, the fish finder. And suddenly we'll see a few marks on the fish finder and we'll just stop the boat, pull it back, start ladling chum out the back and up the tuna come right to the stern of the boat. So that's why, you know, that's one of the, the huge developments in fish finders these days. Um, and one that I, you know, I truly appreciate. So, Given all the electronics you've seen, what's the dream piece of electronics for you on your boat or that other people should be looking at? Oh, on my boat or what I would like to have on my well, boat? Well, what you would <laughs> like to have. On, what, <laughs> yeah, what's, the, what's the dream electronic? Uh, uh, well, nobody really has these in the size of boats that, that, uh, that I have, but um, searchlight sonar is something that a lot of the sport fishing, long-range sport fishing boats out of San Diego use. Now, searchlight sonar is a little bit different than a fish finder. It doesn't, it doesn't shoot straight down. And it, it basically is like ra underwater radar. So you have a, uh, a transducer that either electronically or mechanically rotates. It, it, it's in a, in a, in a, a sea chest. Uh, you can activate it so it goes down below the bottom of the, of the hull. And then it rotates as they're cruising along offshore. And they can spot schools of tuna or dolphin or even marlin out as far away as a mile from the boat wow. so they're big so so this that's a dream piece of electronics if i were to predict in the future what might occur i would say that someday that technology will be brought down to size and we will actually we will have searchlight type sonars on boats in the future for right now we have scanning sonar which works pretty good and but it mostly is a I'm talking about um, the transducers that, that uh, uh, have a beam that goes side to side in a very thin swath and marks uh, bottom structure, but can mark bottom structure out to about oh, 100 yards on either side of the boat. And I use that quite extensively as well to find new spots or, or locate spots that I've, for which I might have lost the, white, the, the uh, GPS numbers. <laughs> So, so speaking of numbers and GPS, before we started this uh, conversation, you and I were talking about I, about uh, GPS units. And so I've got to put a new GPS unit on my boat and I'm looking at something in a seven or nine inch model. Um, and, you know, we've talked about uh, Garmin and Lowrance and, you know, some of the other models that are out there. 
what would you recommend for a, you know, a smaller boat? Uh, you know, I'm running a 21 Bay boat, um, a, a Tidewater. What do you recommend in that seven or nine inch kind of range? Well, I, you know what, here, I look at, um, basically I would get a multifunction display. Uh, I, you know, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be just a chart plotter. It wouldn't be just a fish finder. It wouldn't be just a radar. It would be a multifunction display that networks with all the, and can network in the future with new electronics that you want. For example, um, I have an uh, MF 12 inch MFD on my 21 footer. You've seen it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's networked with the chirp sonar that um, I, I talked about earlier. It's networked with a, with a broadband radar. It's networked with a scanning sonar. It's networked with my engine, my outboard engine, uh, all through NMEA 2000 uh, uh, networking cables. So I can access all of that data on my, um, on my multifunction display. One thing I always tell people is get the largest display you can possibly afford. And, the, and by the way, they, the larger they get, they exponentially become more expensive. Sure. So you'll go from maybe $900 for a nine inch display to $2,000 for a 12 inch display to $3,000 for a, a 16 inch display. So it gets more and more expensive as you go up in size. Uh, but uh, I, f- I think I forgot the question. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were talking about recommended GPS, you know, in the seven or nine inch model. And as yeah. you're talking, you know, oh. part of the reason that I'm going looking at sevens and nines is because my eyes have gotten so bad as I get older that I can't, I can't look at the five inch Lowrance without stopping to put reading glasses on. Right. That, right. That's, and, that's and, and, and that's why the large screen is, 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 is really great because now you can, you could see it, you could split the screen, you can put the chart plotter on one side, put the sonar on the other side, and, and it's, but here's what, you know, and all, by the way, all, all of the brands, all the major brands are good, and I'm talking about Garmin, I'm talking about Simrad, uh, Lowrance, uh, Furuno, Humminbird, um, who I, I'm probably missing somebody there, but I think I got all the majors, they're all great, but it's, here's what I, here's what it's like, you know, you if I'm buying a new TV set, I go to Best Buy and I look at all the TV screens that I, you know, and I don't, and what I do is I look at which one, which picture I like the best, and that's the one I pick. So that's kind of the way it is with multifunction displays nowadays. They all have great networking capabilities. They all have nice, bright color screens. They all have uh, cartography, electronic cartography that is more amazing than I've ever seen before. Um, and so I don't think there's a bad choice in the bunch, but I will say this, once you pick a brand, um, then you're kind of, you're, you're kind of locked in to networking with that brand's, uh, peripherals. So if you pick a Garmin, now you're locked into using a Garmin, uh, radar, you're locked into using Garmin components and, and plugins, same thing with Simrad, same thing with Furuno. So, uh, I would, you know, not in addition to looking at the display, the multifunction display, look at the peripherals and make sure you like those as well, because those are the peripherals you're going to be uh, locked into using going forward. Yeah, that makes sense. So one of the things I have to keep in mind is that my uh, trolling motor is Humminbird. And so with the Humminbird, I can you know connect the trolling motor back to the GPS for... Right, right. Uh, so. Minkota, Minkota Humminbird have a nice yeah. networking capability yeah. there. That's very nice. So I'm not sure if you told me this or if I read it somewhere in print, but I have a recollection that of all the fishing you've done, that you've claimed that fishing for mahi is your favorite. 
It is. <laughs> so, it is. A, is that true? And if so, what is it that puts dolphin fishing on the top of your angling preferences? I, you know, I don't know. It's probably I, because I caught those fish so much when I was a kid. I just grew to love them. They're, they bite probably because they're easier to catch than other fish. And, uh, <laughs> it, and so I don't have to worry too much about it. Once you find them, they're going to bite, but uh, no, they're color, They bite easily. They quickly, they, uh, they jump. So I love acrobatic fish. They're beautiful fish, uh, to look at. Uh, they taste great. Um, uh, what else? and you, they often school up. So you're going to catch if you catch one mahi, you're probably going to catch a bunch more along with it. So, I mean, I love catching lots of different fish, but ma uh, and mahi is fairly rare occurrence here in Southern California. They come in during the summer, almost every summer, but only for a few weeks. So that time is precious and I, and I love going out. Other than going down to Baja, as you and I did at one point together. Yeah, uh, we're going to talk about that in a second because yeah. that was an adventure. <laughs> it was. So, but I think I love mahi, but I, I love, you know, here, here in SoCal, we have bluefin tuna, we have yellowfin tuna, we have marlin, we have uh, California yellowtail, halibut. You and I caught some rockfish together and we hooked a few giant sea bass together. Those are all fun fish to catch. And I'll, I'll take, you know, I love all kinds of fishing. <laughs> yeah, I remember you know, one of the things that stands out about the, when we did fish there off Catalina um, was uh, we got the opportunity, kind of a rare opportunity when those Rizzo dolphins came in and we got to film mm -hmm. those and uh, that that was that was just great. Something that you know we don't get to see here in Florida. But yeah, those rizzos are huge. I mean, they almost they're so large and uh, they almost look like uh, pilot whales. They're yeah. they're so they're so big and they move in when we when we get the uh, live squid comes into uh, our waters because that's their primary forage is live live opalescent squid. And when you see those guys, they actually they're kind of scary. They're big. They're big dolphins and. Uh, when they go under the boat, it's almost like a whale going under the boat. Yeah, that was that was great. Yeah, we had fun that day. I, you know, I was thinking about that day, but I was also thinking about, you know, some of the other pieces you've done for, you know, about specific fish species. And I remember a piece you did, and, I, and I'll tell you why I remember this piece, um, but you had written about California sheep's head. And, um, you know, California sheep's head are very different from, you know, the sheep's head we have here on the East Coast. But what, what, the reason I remember that was that the pictures that were posted in the online version, there's one of you holding this fish with just this absolute magnificent coloration, you know, with a big black band and that bright red stripe. And then you scroll down a little bit and there's your son, Brandon, holding one that has absolutely no color. And I was thinking, <laughs> yeah, Jim must have done this so that he's the one that looks, with the, looks good with the exciting fish. <laughs> they're, uh, they're an interesting fish. I don't, you know, there's a few, there's... I love catch and release, but that's definitely a fish that I focus on catch and release quite a bit of because I just think they get, they get a little too pressured, but, uh, the, what happens with those, those, and we call them sheephead out here, California sheephead. Uh, they're a, a member of the RAS family, like, uh, Totog or, you know, blackfish, they're RAS as well. Hogfish, I think are RAS. So the, uh, and they go through, uh, uh, let me see. I mean, how can I, how can I put this? They're hermaphroditic. So they, they are born as females uh, and they have that lighter kind of pinkish color to them until they reach a certain age or they become the dominant sheephead on a, any particular piece of structure. And that, uh, at that stage, biologists tell me, that triggers them to uh, transition to a male. 
And then they developed those striking colors with the black head and tail with the red in between and the big hump on their, on their head and a white shin. So uh, they become, they become male and they become, uh, and then they get big. That's when they get up to, you know, 25, 35 pounds. And wow. they, they are incredibly powerful. Wow. Yeah. I just remember seeing those pictures and thinking, God, that's just a really cool looking fish. So. It is. It'll, they will pin you to the rail. I'd love for you to get you on one of those guys and uh, they will just absolutely pin you to the rail on the first 10 feet off the bottom. You don't think it, 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 it's, it's, it's anyone's calls to who's going to win. Yeah. Well, next time I'm out there, hopefully soon, we'll, we'll take you up. <laughs> okay. For sure. So, so we've been talking about California waters, um, but you know, given what you do, you fished a lot of places uh, all over the world outside of Southern California. Um, and you know what you do here in Florida when you're here and you know, next time you come to crystal river, you got to let me know, you know, you're an hour away from me. And uh, I, didn't yeah, I don't know how you missed out on that trip. Yeah. On, uh, I'll have to get the, <laughs> uh, the coordinator together and make sure you get invited on that one. Well, what are, I, I'll, I take you up on that too. So what are the other places that stand out for you, but best places and best fish? Oh, okay. Well, I have to say uh, probably back in the day, my favorite, most fun place to fish was uh, Charlotte Harbor in Florida on the uh, West coast of Florida. I, I fished with a couple of friends. The, they were twin brothers, the uh, Frank and Eric Bachnick. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Miralure and yeah, Frank I still, I think still, still, uh, guides yeah. uh, in Charlotte Harbor, but we, he, that's when, that's when I realized the, the, the East coast of the Florida guys are into live bait now because we would catch, we would load, he had a mullet boat back then and, uh, West coast. Would, yeah, yeah. He would load that mullet boat, uh, live well full of pilchards. And then we would, we never fished in the boat. We'd get out of the boat. He'd go up into a, like an area, we'd get out of the boat. We'd load up our little baskets with, with pilchards and uh, he would chum, he would he'd go into the snook hole and he would chum it up and wait. And those snook would just get, go crazy. And you could, it wasn't unusual to have a hundred snook days back then. I got to ask you, because, you know, I had this exact same experience with them, that big wide beam flat boat that they ran yep. down there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so th- I got that experience for a media event that uh, Bear Advertising was running for Suzuki and Penn. And right. I'm wondering, were we on that same trip back then? We might've been, we might've been. I, uh, I, uh, was working for bear back then. And I think this, I went fishing with the Bachnicks to see what it was like. I had to go out and do some site inspection, you know, and uh, I came back and I said, this is a trip we have to take editors on. So we ended up doing quite a few trips with, uh, with the Bachnicks fishing for the snook. And, and, and that wasn't the only thing because I mean, there would be acres and acres of redfish at times. And then it was just, then it was just top water lures, just throw out whatever, whatever you could and get them to come in. They, they were so thick. I remember we'd draw them in with a top water, They'd run through our legs because we were waiting and they occasionally one would run into us and it was like getting hit, hit in the shin with a ball peen hammer. They were these great, these big fat, fat redfish. And it was, it was, it was the funnest fishing ever. I, I have to tell you. Yeah. I, 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 now that you, I did that exact same thing with them. We, you know, you had the little mesh uh, floating bags behind you with all the pilchards in it and yep. we'd wade up and down about waist deep and Yeah. Lots of snook, lots of redfish. I remember waiting along, you know, looking for look, looking for redfish. I had that bag trailing behind me, 
all of a sudden something's tugging on. This is the shark story. I know this story. <laughs> I've heard this from Eric. Yeah, I know this story. And it was a nurse shark. Yeah. He wanted my bait. <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering if we were there together at one time or another because we might have been. We might have been, Sid. Yeah, my memory's not as good pictures. as it used to be. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to go back through the pictures and see if you're you're in any of my yeah. photos from then. I was writing for uh, the Fisherman magazine back then. That was uh, 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 writing for that weekly. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. let's see the other the other place. I've been to lots of fun, fun places, but I I would say that the uh, the trips down to Baja California have been some of the most memorable, some of the most exciting. Uh, fishing down there, we've caught, caught. I remember one year when I was just out of high school, we went down there and we caught. And it, this this is incredible to, uh, to to say because I thought it was normal at the time. We went out on one trip and caught thirteen rooster fish. Uh, in one after one morning, the smallest I think was 50 pounds and the biggest was 65 pounds. And, and I thought, wow, this is, this is pretty fun. Well, I'll have to come back and do this again. I've never heard of anybody doing that since then. Wow. <laughs> one was or that, two, one or two or three rooster fish made a morning, you know, was that from the beach or was that, uh, that was from a boat, a charter the- boat that we took out. That was out of Mulahe. Uh, and which is fr- pretty far up north in that in, on the peninsula in the Sea of Cortez, so uh, we had a lot of fun. I've gone out and then we've done a lot of done a lot of fishing in the Mulahe River for Pacific snook and uh, snapper that look a lot like uh, mangrove snapper, but they're actually dog snapper on the Pacific side. And my brother and I used to have just a, a blast. Uh, Fishing in the river, you know, fishing along the shorelines, catching snook and corvina and snapper and cabria and getting our getting our butts kicked by a lot of big fish back in the day. So that was that was some of the more most memorable fishing ever, I think, as a kid anyway. That sounds great. So let's talk about Baja. Okay, (laughs) I've been I've been prompting it since you since we started talking but you and i had a heck of an experience a couple of years back um on a media trip some great people on that trip uh joe shields the editor of virginia sportsman brian Hendricks out of arkansas gazette a couple of other west coast guys uh from b and d from uh, bloody decks uh and your son brandon was with us as well and um we got to do some fishing in a rather uh uh interesting way yeah that's that's the thing about fishing is and i was talking you know to someone the other day is you know if you want adventure go fishing because you never know what's going to happen (laughs) and it started from the big from the before we left the dock (laughs) right because when we got to the dock i mean everybody has to understand we were there for this big fishing tournament and we got to the dock and we're all excited because there were all these big, beautiful, you know, sponsored boats. There was a boat sponsored by Akuma and some other big fishing boats for this big fishing tournament. And what do they put us on? <laughs> it, was a, it was a ponga. No, it was a super ponga is what right. they called it. It was a super ponga. <laughs> right. And the, uh, the, the captain doesn't speak English and none of our Spanish is good enough to communicate with him very well. And as we head out, and so it's you and me, Brian Hendricks from Arkansas and your son, Brandon, and we realized we're supposed to be going fishing, but there was no fishing tackle on this (laughs) boat other than what you happened to have brought. Thank goodness brought some tackle with us, huh? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, otherwise we were on a fishing trip with no fishing tackle. 
I know that was that was, that was insane, and the boat itself was in a state of horrible disrepair. I re- <laughs> well, remember there was no gas cap, and every time we'd lurch, there were little sloshes of gasoline coming out of the gas tank. That's right. There was no gas cap, and the outboard engine—I won't name the brand—but uh, it was about a 40, 50 horse outboard engine burned a quart of oil every 10 miles. Do you remember that? That's right. We had to keep stopping and put oil in it. That's right. <laughs> and it wasn't a two-stroke. It was a four-stroke. Right. <laughs> I well, looked I down and I saw the uh, I saw the bilge pump and it was, the wires were just simply twisted together with their, somebody just twisted them together with their hand. I was like, well, at least it has a bilge pump. That's the good news. <laughs> I remember, you know, Brandon was throwing out little baits and catching little mahi, uh, right. little peanuts and chickens. And um, I'll also never forget, and I don't mean to make fun of him because I like Brandon a lot. We stay in touch via Facebook. Um, but he was dressed like a mahi that day, too. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> um, yeah, he, he picks his clothes based on what he wants to catch. <laughs> I, I like it. I like it. And he was catching them. We were, I mean, he was doing well. And um, we had seen a couple of Mako's jump and we had seen some uh, uh, manta rays jump. A uh, you know, beautiful place to be out there. And then I think, uh, I know I was sitting on the bow and I saw those two black fins come up and um, we had Marlin in sight. And, yeah. and, I thought we were all uh, here. I'll confess. I thought, oh, this is no way we're going to catch these fish. We are way undergunned. We have these little tiny, lever, they were lever drags, but they were small. They were about the size of a bass reel, both of them. Right. And I said, uh, and we barely had any bait. And, uh, but Brandon, who was like, he had like all the confidence in the world, you know, so it's uh, the confidence of youth, I guess. He said, well, let's let's put a bait out let's catch these guys like uh, all right so you know he pins on a mackerel he throws it out there and then uh he uh and then somebody else i don't know if it's me or so i pinned on a mackerel on the other rod and i threw it out there and i just kind of set the rod in a rod holder and brandon was immediately bit by the marlin marlin came up and ate that mackerel and he put it into gear around and summarily was broke he, the marlin sawed through the leader. I think we had like a 30 pound leader on there and off he went. And so he was, you know, heartbroken, but no sooner had he broke off the fish than the other rod that I'd stuck in the rod holder would bent over double. (laughs) So there were two Marlin there and, uh, Brian who Brian Hendricks, no relation, Brian Hendricks, because he had never caught a Marlin before. So we all said, Brian, you take it, take it. Right. Well, I mean, I, I thought he had no no chance of landing the fish, but let's go ahead and take it. Right, and I mean that's the thing. The reason you know, we we everybody said, yeah, Brian's got to take this. Is here's a guy whose specialty is turkey hunting in Arkansas, and he writes about bass fishing. Right. And here's a hookup on a marlin. You got to let the guy do it. And here he is hooked up to this marlin on this tiny little rod and reel. And you know, between you and me and Brandon. Uh, you know, we're all just yelling way too many instructions. Um, I've got the whole thing on videotape and uh, too many cooks in the kitchen at that point. And we're all trying to film it. We're all trying to coach him. And, but um, and one of the complicating factors was in, in addition to being way undergunned is he was left-handed and the reel was a right-handed reel. Right. That's right. And so, so he's struggling with, you know, just getting his, his coordination right on that. 
That's uh, right. So yeah, his first first big game fish, and he's and he's got it on the wrong kind of reel for his for his dexterity. <laughs> well, but, like the wrong oh, kind of reel for the fish too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. His everything was wrong. But despite all of that, we landed the fish. <laughs> we did. We got good photographs. Yeah. Uh, and, and I remember Brian yelling because the captain had yelled, "Come to Papa! Come to Papa!" <laughs> and so. Brian kept yelling that the rest of the day. I will say, and I don't know what your feelings were on the matter, but here we are with a beautiful billfish alongside the boat. Everybody's taking pictures and film. And all of a sudden, the captain just launches out with the gaff and gut gaffs this marlin and brings it up on, on board. And I don't think any one of us on that boat had ever thought anything other than releasing the billfish, you know, the idea. Yeah, no, I, I definitely did not want to keep it. And it came as a complete surprise, particularly since once he gaffed it, he lifted it up and, and threw it on the deck. I think and most it was, of us got cut by the bill. And I, I knew yeah, I got it was going crazy. Cap. Yeah. It just, it, speaking about getting hit in the shins, I think it hit, it banged against my legs about eight times. It's like, oh, I hope I'm not. I hope I didn't break a bone here. But, well, it it's Me it's Mexico, and and some. I don't think this. I don't think that particular skipper really had had ever expected to catch a marlin. No, no, I don't think he knew we were actually going fishing. So, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but I mean, I think the other fun part at that moment also was when he was pulling it up. So here's the panga which isn't you know it's a very narrow beam boat to begin with mm -hmm. and all of us rush to that side of the boat and i'm Take holding on to the right? t-top yeah i thought we were all going over at that point also <laughs> <laughs> i know i know well just a, a great a great fishing adventure one that uh, was certainly memorable and like i say you just that you know that's why i don't like going to amusement parks like disneyland and that stuff because you you know what you know what's going to happen when you go to Disneyland. You never know what's going to happen when you're out on the water. Absolutely. You know, I used to, there, Disney used to have a, a quick Disney story. Disney, before they created downtown Disney, um, they had a, another area that was bars and restaurants. And I used to walk into these Disney bars and everything was fake. You know, there was fake chewing gum on the floor. There was fake graffiti. And, you know, you know, you've traveled enough. You know that you can walk into a bar anywhere in the world. And if there's alcohol present, the one thing about a bar is you never really know what could go on there. In a Disney bar, you know exactly what's going to go on there. And it's <laughs> yeah. as boring as it can possibly be. But yeah, yeah. I also remember on that trip, <laughs> so part of the trip, they had the had the, the golf course and I've mm -hmm. never golfed in my life and was completely hung over the day we had to golf. Um, whereas <laughs> Brandon was all into it and, you know, trying to shoot the best game of his life while I was trying to hydrate on the green. Um, but I, I'll never forget when you and I, the other part of this was checking out their spa and right. you and I walked into the spa to get our massages neither one of us comfortable with the idea of, of, of stripping down in front of all these people we've never uh, met to get massage. I've never, I've never had a massage before, so I had no idea what I was supposed to do. In fact, I, I left my underwear on. I just said, I'm not taking my underwear I, off. I remember you walked, because they'd given us those robes, and you walked out toward the shower with me, and you go, I left my underwear on. I said, good, I left my bathing suit on. I was afraid. I was afraid what might happen if I didn't. I'd say, oh, Mr. Gene, what are you doing? <laughs> Oh, good times. So I really appreciate the conversation today. And I got one last question for you that we're asking everybody on the show. 
And that's what's your grail fish? What's the fish you still quest for that you really want? Well, okay, good, good question. And uh, I actually have two, but um, the the one is is uh, a Southern California swordfish. I spent uh, the better part of last year deep dropping uh, with a buddy uh, for for uh, a swordfish, and it's the um, you know that fishery is a burgeoning fishery out here we just we just figured out how to catch deep drop daytime swordfish here in southern california uh and guys are doing well not me but a lot of guys have done well uh deep dropping for swords out here and they're and it's in fact i did a story for saltwater sportsman recently called backyard broadbills because they're not too far off the beach you know we have we guys are catching um uh outside Newport Harbor, two or three miles on, New, and on the edge of Newport Canyon, uh, deep dropping, something we ne- nobody ever knew really existed until a couple of years ago, you know, that the swordfish were out there and how to, how to deep drop for them. So we're figuring, we're figuring that out, but I still, we've gotten, we had bit twice, we had one uh, fish on once and it came unbuttoned. Uh, but, um, and I wanna catch it in my boat, you know, my little boat. Right. I want to catch it. It's important that I catch that fish in my boat. So um, that is my, my one, the Holy grail that I've really pursued and have not yet succeeded at. Um, The other fish is the uh, Opa and we catch uh, it's an incidental fish. I don't know that anybody just goes out and targets Opa. Uh, Some people might think they're rare, but they're not really because the longliners catch a lot of them. Yeah, I didn't so know they would out take there. a hook. I didn't know they would take a bait. I had never thought of them as something you would catch. I just assumed. Yeah, yeah. The opa is a lot of. They're usually caught incidental to tuna fishing. Somebody backlashes and they pull out a backlash, and their lure goes to jig sinks way, 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 way down. And then when they finally get the backlash out, they put the reel in gear and they're winding it up really fast to get it. You know, to get do more fishing, and they end up hooking an opa. And they get up. They're pretty, really, pretty big. You know, 160, 200 pounders. Wow. Uh, according to biologists, the only really the only true bl- warm blooded fish in the ocean. Wow. So Thank those are my those are my two holy grail fish. Oh, that's great. Well, thanks, Jim. I really appreciate you joining us here on the Inventive Fishing Fishing Professor Show. And um, I guess I hope to see you in Miami and uh, we can finish the conversation there. We will see each other. We'll have a drink and we'll talk. We'll tell more stories to each other. Sounds good. Thanks, Jim. All right. See you. See you soon. Oh man, there is nothing I like more than talking fishing with you out there and the listening crew. You're what makes the Fishing Professor Rodcast so much damn fun. But I think I need a break, and then barking dogs are reminding me that it's time for a bourbon break. When I hear them barking dogs, it's like hearing the school bell knowing it's time to go to recess. So let's talk bourbon for a few minutes. And today I want to ramble about one of those great bourbons from that great Park City, Utah distillery, High West. And today I want to talk about High West American Prairie Bourbon. Now I have to say I was first introduced to the High West brands when I was in Park City a few years before their bottles started showing up in Southern state liquor stores. And I fell in love with all those brands pretty quickly. And now I keep several bottles of different High West products on my shelf. But today I'm going to focus on American Prairie Bourbon. One of the appeals of this bourbon is its low price point at about 30 bucks a bottle. 
I also dig the name of this bourbon and the meaning behind it. The American Prairie name honors the American Prairie Reserve, a nonprofit organization formed in 2001 that is working to create the largest wildlife reserve in the lower 48. You can learn more about their efforts at American Prairie, all one word, dot org. High West supports American Prairie's efforts, and the American Prairie bourbon label depicts a pronghorn antelope. The image was painted by Montana artist Diane Whitehead. The pronghorn antelope is North America's fastest land animal, and their herds have been devastated by 98% since the, since the 1800s. The American Prairie Reserve is intended to provide habitat for the antelope, among other species. That alone deserves more than a toast. It deserves its own bourbon. So High West donates 10% of all of the after-tax profit on American uh, Prairie bourbon uh, to the American Prairie Reserve. Now, as to the bourbon itself, American Prairie bourbon is actually a blend of straights that are at least two years old. But according to the High West web pages, the ratios of the blends are, quote, top secret. They also don't disclose where they source their bourbons from to make the blend, except to identify MGP, which is a distillery in Lawrenceburg, Indiana, that produces spirits for other companies that are sold by about 50 other companies. MGP has been distilling since 1847. What we do know of the blends, though, is that the mash bill of the bourbon from MGP is 75% corn, 21% rye, and 4% malted barley. The non-disclosed bourbon's mash bills is something like 84% corn, 8% rye, and 8% malted barley. The blend is aged in new charred oak, but they don't disclose for how long other than providing a range of 2 to 13 years. The American Prairie bourbon is a 92-proof bourbon. It has a light leather coloration that resembles the tan saddle fur of the pronghorn antelope. The nose of the bourbon blend is light, with a pleasant orangish smell blended with the sweetness of caramelized sugars. There's also some touches of vanilla bean here and a hint of oak. And I'll admit the nose is not robust. You have to work at it to draw out the individual scents. That lightness follows through in the opening taste, which is dominated somewhat by rye and some spice with that vanilla bean from the nose lurking in the background. It's all very pleasant, but like the nose, there's nothing vigorous in the taste, just a lot of lithe pleasantness here. There's a bit of increase of spice in the finish, but not much. Look, here's the thing about American Prairie bourbon. This is a bourbon that is blended from undisclosed source bourbon. It has a massive age range for two to 13 years, so there's a lot of uncertainty here. But it has a great feel-good backstory. It's pleasant for drinking, either neat or on ice. It's got a very reasonable price point of 30 bucks, so it's going to appeal to a lot of people, including me. This isn't the bourbon I go to when I want to get deep into the metaphysics or ontology of bourbon. It's the bourbon I go to when I want a simple, pleasant drink, and I want to feel good about supporting a good cause while I'm drinking, or at least a better cause than my actual drinking, which is a great cause for all of you to support. So listen, there's a lot of reasons to have a bottle of High West American Prairie blended bourbon around, but none of them are tied to this being a provocative bourbon. This is a humdrum bourbon, but that's okay. It's still pleasant, and as other bourbon breaks have and will discuss, High West's reputation exceeds this one line in their repertoire. 
So those are my thoughts on High West American Prairie Bourbon. But before we put the bottle down and pick the rod back up, and as a final note, my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break Reviews are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all. Though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion, the bourbons I reviewed are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of bourbon know-how developed over many years in many of the country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back-alley speakeasies. And since we're talking about High West and Park City, let me give a shout-out to the memory of Robert Redford's now-permanently-closed Zoom restaurant and the bar that used to sit off Main Street in Park City. Man, my friends and I used to have some great times in there while we were out and we got back from trout fishing. And there's one night there that involved a lot of bourbon and a snowball fight inside the bar. Zoom was great. Really going to miss that place. So that's that. And here's to staying positive and testing negative. As always, if you have comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com. That's it for the bourbon break. Let's get back to the show. All right, let's turn our attention to the fishing professor's top 10 for the week. And this week, I'm going to keep my eyes on some inshore fishing and count down my top 10 favorite shrimp imitators. Now, before I get to the lures themselves, and like I said in the intro to this episode, I've spent a lot of time researching and writing about shrimp imitators. I've written articles for Saltwater Sportsman and Florida Sportsman about artificial shrimp and about shrimp. And I've reviewed a lot of artificial shrimp on the Inventive Fishing web pages and also on the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel. So I tend to be pretty particular about what artificial shrimp I use. So I need to point out that there are so many shrimp imitators out there. And just about every company, whether a small garage-based company or a big-time manufacturer, well, they all make some kind of shrimp lure, especially if they're in the business of making soft plastics. And part of the reason for this is that if you correlate the importance of shrimp as a forage species in just about every inshore fishing environment with the possibility that anglers are going to want to exploit the ubiquity of shrimp by always having some kind of shrimp imitator, you can see why it makes good business sense to make some kind of shrimp imitator if you're in the lure business. Shrimp occur in every ocean on the planet, and they're primary forage for just about every fish out there. So most lure manufacturers have some kind of shrimp imitator. And a lot of the shrimp lures that are out there are soft body plastics, and there are a few hard body shrimp out there as well, and we'll talk about some of those. There are plenty of scented shrimp lures, and there are plenty that are not scented. But I'm going to keep this simple and not distinguish between different kinds of shrimp lures. These are just my 10 favorites. These are the artificial shrimp that I fish with the most, but you have to understand that I have a bin full of other shrimp lures that I have bought over the years that just don't live up to these 10. In some instances, too, ranking one lure above or below another is tough because they both perform admirably. So really, you should think of this list as all top-notch, effective, reliable, artificial shrimp. And just as a reminder, the Fishing Professor Rodcast is not sponsored by anyone, so there is no manufacturer influence on this list. It's my honest list. This is really the shrimp that I use. 
So let's kick it off at number 10 with Paul's Dinkum Shrimp from Unfair Lures. Now, this is a hard body lure that has a great natural look of a shrimp and a great directional presentation. I know that when Paul Van Reenen designed this shrimp, he paid a lot of attention to the details of the shrimp's movement in the water, particularly its backwards retreat when threatened. The shrimp does a great job of imitating a retreating shrimp. At number nine, I've got Berkeley Gulp Alive Shrimp. The gulp shrimp is a go-to for so many anglers I know. It's a scented body, soft body, that is packaged in a liquid solution to make sure the lure is always infused with the scent. And really, it's that scent that makes the gulp shrimp so popular. The focus of the lure design is on the material and the scent, not necessarily the lifelike visual qualities of the shrimp. Anyone who fishes gulp will tell you that they're messy, but they're really effective lures. At number ocho, I've got one of the toughest, most durable shrimp bodies out there, the Monster 3XX Move Shrimp. This is a soft body lure made from a really strong TPE plastic, making it one of the most rugged soft body shrimp out there. The X-Move shrimp has a segmented tail that kicks and flutters like a live shrimp's tail when twitched and retrieved. Very, very lifelike. It's also very versatile in terms of rigging, whether rigged with a weighted jig head, a plain hook, or with a drop weight. You can rig this shrimp pretty much any way you want. Now, the other thing I should point out about the Monster 3XX Move Shrimp is that the plastic is very interactive with other plastics. So you absolutely have to store Monster 3X lures separate from other lures or they're going to melt. This isn't a big deal, and I just keep my Monster 3X lures in a box by themselves. Given the strength of these lures, keeping a separate box for them seems like a fair trade-off. If you want to see my full review of the Monster 3X Move Shrimp, you can find it on the Inventive Fishing webpage and at theinventivefishing.com or uh, the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel. Okay, at number seven, I've got Z-Man Easy Shrimp. The Z-Man Easy Shrimp is a redfish slayer. I love this soft body shrimp. Shrimp. I love that you can get them pre-rigged with a weighted hook and that the unrigged can either serve as a replacement for the rigged shrimp when it's worn out or it allows you to rig the shrimp however you'd like. I love the flutter of the easy shrimp tail that happens because of the segmented tail design. It also has great flutter movement in its thin little shrimp legs, adding to the realistic visual presentation. The lure is made from Z-Man's Elaztec plastic, which is a very rugged and resilient plastic. This is a great shrimp for fishing under a popping cork too. It's a three and a half inch shrimp and it comes in 10 color options. I'm putting Live Target's rigged shrimp in the number six position. This is one of the most realistic looking shrimp out there. It's kind of a hybrid hard body and soft body lure that's available in a three and a four inch model and in 11 colors. I've had consistent luck with the three inch versions in the sand shrimp, glass shrimp, glow shrimp, and brown shrimp variations. The one thing you need to know about the swimming action of this lure is unlike some of the other shrimp imitators that work to depict a fleeing or panicking shrimp, which swims backwards when under duress, the live target rig shrimp imitates a shrimp swimming in its forward relaxed swimming motion. It's also got an internal rattle that mimics the popping sound of a shrimp that a shrimp would make while swimming. It really is a fantastic shrimp imitator. Okay, at number five, I'm going with an iconic lure, probably the most important shrimp lure in the history of designing shrimp lures. It's the most often copied shrimp body design out there. And I'm talking, of course, about DOA's shrimp. This really is the gold standard in shrimp. I've been fortunate to have had a few opportunities to talk, talk with Mark Nichols about why and how he designed the DOA shrimp as he did. 
And I've also spent a significant amount of time reviewing Mark's patents for the shrimp. Now, what makes Mark's design so great, and he told me about how much time he invested in getting this aspect of the shrimp right, is that the shrimp falls horizontal like a shrimp does when settling down from the water to a solid surface. If you've ever watched a shrimp swim, when it rests, it settles not with its head up or tail up, but horizontally. The DOA shrimp has this action down perfect. That's in part due to the internal weight of the lure, which also makes this a very castable lure. The DOA shrimp is available in five sizes, ranging from two inches to six inches. I rely a lot on the original three-inch model, but I have to say that I absolutely love throwing the big six-inch version to snook and big redfish. All in all, the DOA shrimp is a must-have shrimp in your arsenal. That said, there are some newer shrimp designs that have become very predominant in the lure market, and for a good reason. They are innovations that just really improve the possibilities of artificial shrimp. And they are remarkable good at enticing the they're remarkably good at enticing the bite. So with a nod to Mark Nichols and the DOA shrimp for revolutionizing shrimp lures, I turned my final to my final four as the new generation of designers and lures that have pushed artificial shrimp design to the next level. So at number four, I've got Savage Gear's 3D Manic Shrimp. This is another great lure design from Mads Grossel, one of the premier designers working in the lure industry right now. Like many of the other Savage Gear lures, Mads uses 3D scans of live shrimp to get his lifelike shape and movements for the lure. The Savage Gear 3D Manic Shrimp has a segmented tail that is infused with a nylon mesh. This gives the tail a great kicking action, and the nylon mesh, when combined with the ultra-soft TPE plastic of the body, makes the shrimp really rugged. That internal mesh and the tough plastic prevents tears, particularly on short bites. The manic shrimp comes rigged with a weighted hook that is low profile enough to be as close to weedless as you can get. There are three size options for the manic shrimp, a two and a half, a four and a five inch version, and they come in 10 color options. This really is one of the best shrimp imitators out there, though I guess we could call them shrimitators. And yes, I've reviewed the Savage 3D manic shrimp, and you can watch that review on the Inventive Fishing web pages at inventivefishing.com or on the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel. At number three, I want to go with a recent addition to the artificial lure market, Chase Bait's Flick Prawn Shrimp. Chase Bait's is an Australian company that has been making big splashes in the U.S. market in the last couple of years. They have some great saltwater lures, and among those, I've come to really respect their take on the shrimp lure with the Flick Prawn Shrimp Lure. Like other new shrimp designs, the Flick Prawn is incredibly lifelike, both in terms of visual appearance and lifelike movement in the water. One of the things I like about the Flick Prawn too is that it comes rigged with a weighted hook that is painted to match the soft body of the lure. The hook is also rigged weedless, which I like when fishing in grass and rocky environments. It comes in two sizes, a 3.74 inch and a 4.92 inch version, and is available in seven color patterns. Chase Bait's Flick Prawn is just a great shrimp imitator, whether you're fishing it under a popping cork or jigging it along the bottom. In my runner-up spot at number two, I have got another of the most recently introduced shrimp imitators to the lure market, the winner of the 2018 ICAST Best Saltwater Lure Product Showcase, and now an even higher honor by being named the number two all-time favorite shrimp lures by me, the fishing professor. I give you live targets fleeing shrimp. 
Like the name says, the swimming action of this shrimp lure mimics a shrimp fleeing, which means the lure appears to swim backwards with a snapping motion. The lure achieves this through its silicone skirt that moves great in the water and on the retrieve to mimic the action of a shrimp's front legs when fleeing a predator. The remainder of the body is a durable, tough plastic, and the tail of the lure is a weighted jig head. The profile of the lure is incredibly lifelike, and it comes with an internal glass rattle to create an auditory attractant through its clicking sound, like the clicking of a fleeing shrimp. It's also a scented lure. That gives this lure three sensory attractants, smell, sight, and sound. And yes, I've reviewed this one too, and you can check that out on that video gear review out at InventaFishing.com or on the InventaFishing YouTube channel. All right. So that brings me to my number one favorite artificial shrimp. But before we get to it, let's get a quick recap of the top nine Bubba Gump style. Paul Dinkum shrimp, Berkeley Gulp Alive shrimp, Monster 3XX Move shrimp, Z-Man Easy shrimp, Live Target Rig shrimp, DOA shrimp, Savage Gear Manic shrimp, Chase Bait Flick Prawn shrimp, Live Target Fleeing shrimp. All right. And that brings us to the fishing professor's number one favorite artificial shrimp. And that is voodoo shrimp by egret baits. Now I love what Ken Shomon has done with egret baits and his shrimp design and the voodoo shrimp is just excellent. And yes, I reviewed the voodoo shrimp a few years back on the review is still available at inventafishing.com and on the inventafishing YouTube channel. And in the time since doing that review, I've become even a bigger fan of the voodoo shrimp. This is a rugged, soft-body shrimp that holds up against toothy bites. The soft body has a Kevlar mesh woven through the body to give strength to that body and to help resist tears and short bite rips. It's got a segmented tail and great front legs that contribute to a real lifelike motion when the lure is retrieved or jigged. It comes pre-rigged with a weighted hook and fishes just great under a popping cork or when cast and jigged. It has a great color option array. And Egret Bates has recently added 10 new colors to the Voodoo Shrimp palette. All in all, my absolute favorite shrimp imitator. And that does it for the Fishing Professor's Top 10 for the week. Of course, I'm sure you've got your favorites too. And I'm sure that it, most of you will probably disagree with my selections or rankings. And if you do, you know, hey, well, it's all good. As always, if you've got a shrimp lure you think I should check out, shoot me an email at sid at inventafishing.com. And as always, if you'd like a fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing-related thing, send me an email and I'll see about adding it to my list for future top 10s. All right, let's get back to it. Well, 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 that about wraps things up for another episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast, and what a fun show it's been. I can't say thank you enough to Jim Hendricks of Saltwater Sportsman and Sport Fishing Magazine for that great conversation. Jim's columns are standouts in those publications, and I really think that anyone who wants to improve their fishing and boating know-how ought to be reading his stuff as often as possible. Now, before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The fish are on the reef. I say again, the fish are on the reef. And that just about brings us to the end of this week's broadcast. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. We've got a great new episode coming up next week, and I hope you'll give a listen as soon as it drops next week. 
do remember that all new episodes drop every Wednesday. As always, please be sure to share the Fishing Professor Rodcast with everyone you know, and I'm guessing you know an angler or two. There are so many ways to access the Rodcast, so you and your buddies can always listen on your favorite platform. You'll find the Rodcast on our hosting site at thefishingprofessor.podbean.com and on the Podbean app, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Player FM, the Samsung Podcast, and Podchaser. As always, if you have a comment or question about anything on this week's show or have specific recommendations for future top tens, bourbon breaks, or interviews, please feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you listen to the broadcast on. Hey, and be sure to check out the Inventive Fishing webpages and be sure to follow us on Twitter and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. I guess we should change it. Keep fishing until then. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on. The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!